Last day, everybody's got great energy. Welcome back. I'm inviting our panel to come up and take their seats. And um, I see some attrition, but it looks like the best people are here. Just a couple of announcements, and then um, and then we'll get started with uh, with what's really our keynote topic panel. And, and I'm very happy to have these folks with us. Good morning. Last day of the conference. Um, we're grateful uh, for your attendance, and I'm stalling a little bit. All right, we'll shut the doors. Um, just a couple of announcements, and then and then we'll get started. We were scheduled to have our lunch today, which is a really nice lunch. Everyone's enrolled if you if you signed up for the conference. Um, it's a it, we'll talk about the PAC, the the NAATP Political Action Committee. We'll talk uh, we'll give uh, our annual awards, and we will give away some some prizes, airfare. So don't forget to turn in your your booth exhibit slips at our front desk so you can win tickets, free airfare for two anywhere in the continental U.S. Um, thank you for doing that, John Southworth. Um, all right, uh, and so we've moved inside. We've moved the uh, luncheon inside. It was scheduled to be out on the patio like last night, but we're looking at rain and heat and humidity, more humidity. Um, and so we're going to be in Caribbean 5, which is just behind us here. So um, I think that's those are the big things. I, um, you know, when you when you uh, finish up and go home, and within the next few days you'll receive an email uh, conference evaluation, and we'd be very grateful if you completed that. It doesn't take long. Uh, just complete it, send it back, and then we improve what we do. Uh, you'll also receive your continuing education certificates based on the little scanning magic that happens when you walk in the door. So I think those are the main things. We'll make some more announcements later, but it's my pleasure now to turn over the microphone to our board chair, Carl Kester, who is, uh, who is moderating this panel. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Well, thank you. That's very nice. Very, very kind. Thank you. Thank you, Marvin, and, and thank you all for being here. When I first uh, stepped out from a, an operations position in my organization and started going to conferences, I found a whole lot of people that I disagreed with, and, and I thought that was wrong. And part of my own personal evolution, see I'm tying the title of this talk in there, Treatment Synthesis and Evolution, was that the other ideas, although different than mine, were certainly not necessarily a bad thing. And that listening to the people that presented them I might have an opportunity to improve our organization, which is really what NAATP has always been about, is treatment providers coming together, uh, discussing what's working, what's not working, listening to other people's ideas, and finding a way to be more effective in what we do. And, and as you know, that's the title of this morning's topic. When we look at the title of the conference and we see the, the treatment industry at a crossroads, we know that there are all these different influences out there. So it's not enough to have a, a focus and a treatment philosophy and figure out how to purchase or lease a building, how to hire people, how to get people to come to work, uh, how to get people to continue to come to work, uh, how to uh, evolve in-house. We have different influences, whether it is the plans of the, of the uh, payers, uh, whether it is the plans of the federal government, which is certainly a significant payer, uh, 
and the other professions that we work with. Often we are the big tent where the nurses and the doctors and the counselors all come together uh, to provide a continuum of care. So that is what we're doing this morning. I, I, I don't know that maybe it's a flaw of mine, but as I was listening to people talk about yesterday, some people liked the topic, some people didn't, uh, and I think that's a good thing. I think that we should, we should look at all the parts of the elephant, if you're familiar with that story, so that we can understand uh, the, the forces at play and, and help people the best we can. So I'm really impressed with the work that the conference committee has done uh, and that Marvin has done and, and the willingness of, of these professionals to join us today. Uh, this is an esteemed panel. Uh, what we've asked them to do is to prepare some comments. So they're going to open uh, with comments and they're going to go uh, roughly seven to ten minutes each. Uh, and then we are going to come to you and uh, we are going to ask you to ask questions. And I have some notes if you if you're, haven't had enough coffee so you don't have the uh, readiness to do that. But it is our hope uh, that all of you have some questions uh, to uh, ask our diverse panel of experts. Uh, to my immediate right is June Civilli. June is uh, the director of the Division of Public Health and Safety and Public Safety at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Dr. Onaji Saleem is the director of the Division of State and Community Assistance at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. He's over there. Would you raise your hand? I'm sorry. I'll, I'll get. I'll, I should lift my head up every once in a while. Is that what? Uh, that, there you go. That's what the people at work tell me. Uh, next to June is Dr. Kelly Clark. Dr. Clark is the president-elect of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Uh, she is a psychologist, or excuse me, psychiatrist, and the chief medical officer at Clean Slate. Ray Tomasi is the president and CEO of Gosnold on Cape Cod. He's the recent recipient of the National Council on Behavioral Health Visionary Leadership Award, and he is a board member of NAATP. And uh, down on the end is Fred Holmquist. Fred is with Hazelden Betty Ford. Uh, Fred's been in the field for 39 years. He's the director of the Dan Anderson Renewal Center, uh, and he is a key clinician and educator in Hazelden's application and understanding of 12-step philosophy. So with that, June, I will give it to you. Sure, you can come on up. Be great. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Carl, thanks for that nice introduction. Marvin, I want to say great job, great conference, fabulous. Um, let me just say really briefly, I've been at ONDCP for 20 years, so I've seen a lot of change in our field. And I know that we're all going through growing pains, and there's a lot of transformation going on, but ultimately we, our objective is to get more people the care that they need and to, and to fund it sufficiently. So um, just want to lay that out there. Um, NAT, NAATP is an important partner to ONDCP to ensuring access to effective evidence-based treatment. I'm really honored to be sitting here with this esteemed panel and with this really esteemed group of treatment providers. Without you, we need more of you. We need to triple the number of, of treatment providers in the country to get the people the care that they need. I'm going to talk a little bit about evidence-based treatment models and a little bit about um, integrated care, but first I want to talk about data. In 2014, nearly 130 people a day died from a drug overdose in the U.S. Deaths involving prescription pain medicines have more than tripled between 1999 and 2014. Still, the majority of people, 
with an illicit drug use disorder do not enter treatment. In 2014, 80% of the 7.9 million people with an illicit drug use disorder did not obtain treatment. There are a number of effective evidence-based treatment models that prepare patients for successful recovery and reintegration into the larger community. One of the most effective treatments include medication-assisted treatment. MAT is the standard of care for opioid use disorder. We all know that three medications have been approved by the FDA for treating opioid use disorder, methadone, buprenorphine, and long-acting injectable naltrexone. When such medications are used in combination with behavioral health treatment, evidence shows this approach is effective. A recently published systematic review of 55 articles found that treatment with naltrexone or buprenorphine was associated with better retention in MAT than a placebo or no medication. The retention improved further when contingency management was used in addition to MAT. Another review of case reviews, meta-analysis, and randomized clinical trials concluded that MAT with psychosocial services at least doubles the rates of positive outcomes when compared to treatment with placebo or psychosocial treatment without medication. And a study in Baltimore found that increased access to medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder, particularly the expansion of buprenorphine treatment, may have significantly contributed to reduced heroin overdose deaths from 1995 to 2009. This is why expanding access to, <clears throat> excuse me, to medication-assisted treatment is an important part of the administration's national drug control strategy. Access for MAT for opioid use disorder has been a priority for the administration and in the national strategy since its 2010 inaugural strategy. Here we are in March of 2015, HHS Secretary Sylvia Burwell announces um, a targeted initiative aimed at prescri prescriber training and education, uh, increasing the use of naloxone and expanding the use of MAT. And then earlier this year, the President announced a proposed rule that will, once final, double the number of patients that a doctor can treat with buprenorphine. This rule would expand access to MAT and behavioral health supports to tens of thousands of people with an opioid use disorder. But financial resources are critical if we're going to address the opioid epidemic by expanding treatment. The fiscal year 2017 budget request includes $1.1 billion in new funding to expand access to treatment for prescription drug misuse and heroin use. The bulk of this money includes funding for state cooperative agreements, but it also includes $50 million in, um, for grant program to increase access to MAT and $15 million to evaluate the effectiveness of medication-assisted treatment programs. In addition, the Department of Health and Human Services recently announced $200 million in funding to improve and expand access to, to substance use disorder services in community health centers with a focus on MAT. Last July, CMS started a new demonstration program to allow states to test innovative approaches for substance use disorders that include MAT. And to facilitate access to MAT, we need providers that are trained to screen their patients early and refer them to treatment. We need specialty providers to, to treat patients for substance use disorders, and we need primary care substance use disorder models that are integrated. This type of care, integrated care, needs multidisciplinary practitioner teams of counselors, nurses, social workers, physicians, recovery support specialists, dentists, and others. There are examples of integration, 
models with primary care and substance use that are successful in early screening and treatment of patients. These collaborative models are the ideal setting for delivering MAT together with psychosocial services. In Maine, the Penobscot Community Mental Health Center has substance use disorder services that are integrated within primary care clinics where the entire staff work on all conditions that negatively affect health. Individuals that enter buprenorphine treatment are also required to attend group counseling programs. Another example, in Arizona, the Verde Valley Guidance Clinic, a program for women with behavioral disorders, provides substance use treatment, detox, buprenorphine treatment, and supports women working through a 12-step program. The program also addresses physical health care needs through an on-site health clinic, which is staffed by physicians, nurse practitioners, and, and physician's assistants. Residents receive support for meeting probation requirements when applying for Social Security and when looking for educational opportunities. This approach aims to provide patients with full recovery and reintegration into the community. Avoiding an overdose death and reversing the path to substance use dependence is only one part of the recovery process. We achieve full success with patients when they become productive members of the community. And the first step to that is access to treatment. Today, you can improve the outcomes of your patients by learning more about medication-assisted treatment and integrating it into your practice. You can form partnerships with primary care clinics to provide holistic health care. You have the power to aid your patients with opioid use disorders and support them in their full journey to recovery. With that, I conclude my remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Dr. Salim? Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to salute the NAATP on 38 years of advocacy, organization, and leadership in our field. I joined the field in 1980 as a counseling intern and worked in about every level of care that we have in private nonprofits, private hospitals, city, county, state organizations, and now with the federal government. So kind of like June, I have a long view of this idea, the theme of the conference, evolution and synthesis. We want to talk this morning about integration but not just for its own sake, but what is the value of integration in, in the current era? But first, let me say that uh, I'm not Kim Johnson. Uh, Kimberly, whose nice picture is in the program, is the fifth director of the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment, and she's heralding a new era here uh, for us at SAMHSA. Following the great leadership of a person I'm sure you all know, Dr. H. Wesley Clark. Dr. Clark's leadership was seminal in bringing evidence-based practices to the addiction community. Under Kim's leadership, what I foresee is that we're going to be focusing on quality, we're going to be focusing on data and measurement, and we're going to be focusing on improvement. So many of you know about SAMHSA. SAMHSA has a mission, and it's best summed up if you ever go to our website in our mantra, which is behavioral health is essential to health, prevention works, treatment is effective, and people recover. This uh, is our experience. We know this from our work 
day to day, and from about 40 years uh, of research. We know there's a large treatment gap that has been alluded to by June, not just for opioid disorder, but for all addiction disorders. There are about 23 million people on any given day that meet the criteria for addictive disorder. That's concerning because probably only 4 to 5 percent of those people actually access treatment. And then we know even when people access, the importance is that they engage and that they are retained in treatment. And uh, Kim Johnson's leadership at NIATEX, many of you may have heard of that, was to promote that, to promote effective services that help people stay in treatment long enough for it to take root and to help them recover. SAMHSA's vision has evolved and its practice to a public health organization, a public behavioral health organization. Our theory of change focuses on surveillance. We do several surveys and research in the field. We study, uh, we collect data from treatment organizations, public and private throughout the country. We do the National Household Survey, and um, we publish that, that information. We collect information in something that we call the National Outcome Measures. And I was very pleased to see that NATAP is doing its own self-study named NOM, National Outcome Measures. And uh, this is critical to our field, that we study ourselves and not just try to incorporate theoretical evidence-based practices, but see what's really, what's really working. This is a part of the quality framework that I was uh, talking about. I think by now we can all acknowledge that there are some gold standards in care, in the care that we provide. My colleague down at the end of the table with, uh, who represents the Betty Ford Clinic uh, is one of the innovators of a treatment modality that we may or may not be familiar with. How many of you are familiar with the Physician's Health Program? 79% success rate. And Tom McClellan, former director of the Office of National Drug Control Strategy, said, well, why can't everyone have the gold standard of care? Well, we know that the challenge in the era of parity is financing. And you who work in the private sector, who pay payroll, who uh, have to purchase your own infrastructure, and are part of the treatment delivery system that doesn't necessarily receive federal funding, understand what the challenges are. But we're going to have to work together to improve that delivery system and to figure out the financing uh, complexities. Before we started, my colleagues and I were chatting together and we all agreed it's not just financing, but the workforce that we're going to have to uh, help to build. You agree with that? Thank you, Cynthia, from NADAC. Um, it's not going to be just the ability to pay, but the ability to have qualified, multidisciplinary providers at every level of care. So I look forward to hearing from my colleagues on the panel and talking with you about what can we do to move things forward and how SAMHSA can be your partner. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Dr. Clark? Well, good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm the president-elect of ASAM. As many of you know, ASAM is the organization uh, of addiction medicine physician 
specialists in the country. Um, and uh, our physicians work in every piece of the continuum of care. They work in facilities and inpatient hospitals. They work outpatient. They work in criminal justice settings. They work in public settings and private settings. Uh, so I'm really delighted to be here to speak uh, with you all today. I'm going to say three things that I think are pretty in, uh, incontrovertible facts. And everything else floats from that. Okay? First is that addiction is a chronic brain disease. Second is that addiction medicine has now been recognized as a medical specialty through the American Board of Medical Specialists. And the third is that parity means that behavioral health, meaning psych and substance use disorders, will be treated by payers the same as, gross generalization, but the same as physical health conditions are. Okay? And from those three things flow a lot of very profound changes in the addiction medicine field. So first, addiction is a chronic brain disease. The way that, that we treat chronic diseases as physicians, well, it used to be psychosocial because we didn't have biological mechanisms. And then it became biological because we, could, we had biological mechanisms. And then it became, as my training as a psychiatrist, a biopsychosocial approach. And since I entered uh, work in the addiction field, I think of a, a biopsychosocial spiritual approach. And that is the way that we best treat all chronic diseases, be it addiction, be it diabetes, any chronic disease is best treated with all four components there being, being provided. So as a medical specialty, the way that we look at providing care is the right kind of care, the right modality of care delivered by the right kind of provider in the right level of care, right place, at the right time. Okay? All of those things. It has to be the individualized care, individualized care for what that one patient needs, medical specialty patient needs at that point in time, right time. What do they need right then? Okay? And that's what we do throughout all medical care. A person with diabetes may need to be in hospital for their, when their sugar gets way too high. Okay, they may need to be in hospital for that. We don't consider that to be care, and when they leave that, an episode of care done, and that they are now in aftercare. That's simply one portion of what they need during the course of their managing one day at a time, one moment at a time, with pressure from society and pressure internally to not engage in the right diet and exercise and monitor their medications. And be able to deal with the, the stress of all of that in, in managing their chronic disease process, which becomes a spiritual uh, a challenge. Okay, If you think about the way we think about diabetes, that's the way we're thinking about substance use disorders. Okay? So, medical, uh, so health plans pay for things that are paid for health care that is medically necessary. They don't pay for what a doctor thinks or a provider thinks would be in the best interest of a patient. They don't pay for what a patient thinks might be in the best interest of the patient. They don't pay for what, is, what has been proven to work for that one individual person even. The health plan industry is every bit as regulated as any facility, and by this I mean every hospital in the country. Okay? The health care industry is highly regulated, and health plans, those cards, are medical legal contracts. It's something that um, in behavioral health we haven't dealt with much in the past, really. As a psychiatrist, half of all psychiatrists don't participate in health plans. 
And so there are perhaps similar numbers um, in the addiction medicine world as well as in all of the behavioral health world, not simply psychiatrists. But as we think about um, how we had been in the past, it was very focused on that one patient in the room and what is it that I as the provider can do for that one patient in the room. The movement in healthcare is toward population-based management. We have large numbers of people that are dying of opioid overdose. And let me, let me be very clear, we have more people that are dying of tobacco and alcoholism, okay? We have people dying of addictive disease and we need to deal with the population that are dying. So you'll be hearing and seeing much more about population-based health and, as was mentioned, more about quality metrics and outcomes. And, and outcomes for medical, for medical care really fall into three buckets. There's morbidity, who's dying? How, how shortened is their lifespan? Oh, that's, that's mortality, okay? Morbidity is what is their medical condition because of their disease? So, for example, with diabetes, people who lose their eyesight, okay, they lose, they have to have amputations of their legs because their chronic disease has not been well managed, okay, which means managed by them and their treatment providers. Okay, those are that's morbidity that's related to it. Uh, mortality is death, and then there's functionality. Can people get up and go to work? Can they get their kids back? Can they get visitation first, and can they get their kids back? How are they functioning in their day-to-day -day life? What are they capable of doing, even in terms of activities of daily living? But outcomes are around those things, morbidity, mortality, and functionality. That's what they are. When we treat people with diabetes, we monitor H1C. It's this blood test, and it shows how, how clear uh, the, the range in which their sugars are being maintained. Okay? That's a proxy for us. It's not that we're treating for uh, this one lab test. That's a proxy for what is their risk for problems with morbidity, mortality, and functionality? That's what we're really looking for, right? The same way that I don't expect a person with, with diabetes to be following their diet and exercise regimen all the time, I expect them to eat a cupcake at a party, okay? I expect a person with the disease of addiction to occasionally use a drug. And when they do that at a party, we don't consider that a relapse, that's a lapse. A relapse is when they're back into their being out of control. They, their disease is not managed. Different, different language, different construct. But as we look for outcomes, that time to first cupcake is not, is not an outcome measure. Okay? Morbidity, mortality, functionality, those are outcome measures. And they are driven by a denominator of intent to treat. This is where we get to what the numbers are like, which is why I'm so thrilled to see your outcomes study starting. A hundred people enter treatment. <clears throat> you know, if you can get a hold of five of them a year later and four say that they're doing well, that's a four percent success rate. Things need to be looking substantially better for us as doctors to be able to argue for our patients to access the level of care that they need to access. And here I would talk about the ACM criteria, which is uh, now in a computerized form. And, and getting through that computerized process in the end, it's a, it's a, it follows the ACM criteria, and at the end, it will kick out what are appropriate levels of care. So there are some payers right now that are simply saying, well, that's the prior auth for treatment for a residential level of stay, for example, if that's what comes out at the other end of the computerized software. Um, but that's the kind of thing we're moving at uh, toward the future. 
The other thing that I would mention is that it would be really difficult for a payer to be paying for care at a cardiac rehabilitation if there's no cardiologist that's on staff. You couldn't imagine that, could you? Or paying for cardiac rehabilitation, when cardiac rehabilitation means exercise and diet and dealing with yourself, the, the psychosocial spiritual portion of having had a, a life-threatening illness, okay? Can you imagine a payer paying for a cardiac rehabilitation that did not allow cardiac medications to be taken by the, by the patient, that didn't have a cardiologist on staff? So let me make that provocative statement to you because those are the things that follow from addiction as a chronic brain disease. Addiction medicine is now an, uh, an, uh, a known medical specialty within the American Board of Medical Specialties. And par parity means that behavioral health will be treated the same as physical health. So thanks for the opportunity to speak. Thank you, Dr. Clark. Ray? Thank you. Fred and I were talking a little before the uh, session today. We've, uh, Fred said, how'd you get into this? Uh, well, you know, when I got into this uh, field, <clears throat> I said to Fred, if you could string three sentences together and you'd bring, been to a few meetings, you got a job as a counselor. As a matter of fact, I remember the interview that day and that one, of the, one of the questions was, why do you want to do this? Uh, so it was a time back then when we, um, we knew very little, but we had, um, and many of you were there, uh, we had a passion uh, for this. We had a passion for patience, and we had a passion to make a difference. And there have been, I think, very few seminal moments in our uh, history, which is about a little longer than NATEP's been around, early 70s. This is certainly one of them. And as I um, see what's going on, I look around, I, I, I say to folks, we have great opportunity. Let's not squander the opportunity to really change the way we deliver care, change the way we provide care, and change the way we think about care. <clears throat> you know, the system that I grew up in was Essentially, uh, and it's an, it was an acute paradigm, and we, we had a detox. We had no idea what we were doing. Matter of fact, we, we didn't have a medical director about four weeks before the center opened, and I went to this guy. We knew he was pretty socially conscious uh, doc, and I said, Charlie, I said, uh, I want to ask you a question. I said, uh, will, uh, will, you, will you be the medical director of the new detox that we're opening up? Charlie looked at me, and he said, I don't know anything about alcoholism. I said, it doesn't matter, Charlie. Will you be the medical director? <laughs> so we've come a long way. Charlie said he'd stay six weeks. He stayed six years. <clears throat> so as I, as I look out on, uh, on what's going on, I, there are some things. I, I'm a data guy. Before I worked myself out of my first career and got into this career, I, I, used, I worked in a area of business in New York where we use a lot of data to make decisions about products that we brought to market. <clears throat> so there are always some things that I point out in, in all of my talks. One of them is this, that you know that the number of 
Heroin overdose deaths in 2013 were roughly equivalent to the number of prescription opioid deaths in 2002. That's, that's 15 years ago. We have a crisis of, of certainly much longer than two or three years. We look at, uh, if I look at my state, Massachusetts, actually I'm from New Jersey, but I live in Massachusetts. Um, in Massachusetts last year, we had 22,000 admissions to detox units, 9,200, 9,000 were the same people, 40% multiple admissions in one year. We know that folks do very well in rehab programs, but, but not so much after they leave. And so we began looking at that. And we began looking also of all of the folks who are not yet in treatment centers, certainly the ones that need to be there. But there are many more who are on their way there. And what are we doing about those things? So I, I have a very, uh, I have a passion about two ends, what I call the bookends of care. Uh, so how do we prevent readmissions? How do we help people stay in remission longer following a hospitalization? What are we going to do about that? And the other is, how do we prevent people, people from getting to a bed? I mean, in the best of all delivery systems, we want to try to prevent people from having to go to the hospital, if you will. So I don't think we've done a very good job of that, and there are a lot of reasons for that. There's not about 95 to $100 billion spent <coughs> for behavioral health disorders that are provided in specialty settings. There's about $300 billion in behavioral health costs that are incurred by people who are in hospitals and emergency rooms who are not actually being treated at all. In fact, only 5% of, we'll call them, I hate that word, but we use it, behavioral health specialists work in hospital or medical settings, but 95% of the patients who present with symptoms of those disorders are in those settings. We've got 5% of the people and 95% of the workforce. Workforce is a huge issue. I don't think I have time to get into that. So we have, a, I think, a distorted model. So we've started to look at that. In our small organization, we have a, an opportunity where, where, where we are in Massachusetts to do things, to test little models. And so I'm very kind of obsessed with this thing about preventing readmission and what we need to do that. And we looked at data. We looked at about 75 patients <clears throat> who had completed a rehab stay, uh, all in the 18 to 28-year-old demographic, because that's certainly the most affected population with the opioid crisis. And we followed them post-treatment. In excess of 90% of them had a supportive family, said yes to a continuing, by the way, we've got to use that term, continuing care, said yes to continuing care. And all of them sort of successfully completed the episode of care in the rehab program. Yet within one month, 15% had resumed use. So we had motivated people, motivated people, but the, but the continuum of services that needed to be delivered was weak. There's a very poor, what we call initiation rate, from inpatient care to outpatient care. It's dreadful. So initiation is one thing, and then there's engagement. So an engagement is, has, did somebody come back twice in the next 30 days, if they did come? I, I mean, I'm not going to go into the stats. You can go look at them. They're dreadful. Those connections aren't being made. So what can we do? to help those connections get made. We were working with a community health center. <clears throat> they said, we don't have a behavioral health, we don't have addiction services, we don't have mental health services, can we send our patients to you? 
Absolutely. They had 18,000 patients. Hey, send them. Yeah, you know, they were not showing up. So he said, listen, that's not working. They don't need to be referred. The place is about three miles from our center. We said, just send them and send over a fax and say, Fred's coming. What percent showed? Same day. 20%. Less than 20% showed up. This is a very perplexing problem for us. And then, in, I always take credit for this moment of just absurd brilliance. Why don't we send the clinician over there? Okay? <laughs> then they don't have to come. We'll go there because we know where the place is and we can get there. <laughs> That's what we did. We are now the behavioral health provider internal to that FQHC. There are no cancellations. There are no cancellations. And the clinicians are working in sort of the patient-centered medical home model with physicians and mid-range practitioners in a team that's addressing both their physical health needs, their mental health needs, their substance use disorder needs, and when those individuals need more than brief interventions, guidance, support, and are referred to a specialty site, whether it's ours or someone else in the community, they show up. Because one of the things, they're going to come back for their doc visit, and when they see their doc, they're going to see our clinician who's talking to that other provider. We haven't gotten the EMR stuff it's, uh, yet, but wait till the, we have a new EMR coming on in two weeks. Every problem we have in the organization is, wait till the new EMR comes. <laughs> I've been around. Yeah, wait. <clears throat> so let's start thinking about bringing the services to the people. You know, I remember when Tom McClellan spoke at, at, a, at a National Association event about four or five years ago. And, he, you know, they always put that little pyramid up to only 10% of the people, 25 million, 2.5. It's like it's never changed in 15 years. I mean, my God. But I was struck by one of the numbers underneath that. <clears throat> so you had the little piece at the top, which is most of the acute cases that we treat, and you had another group, and then you had, I remember the number, 600 million, like, abusers, like, alcohol primarily. And I can tell you, it's, that's a much bigger issue. And I was struck by that. So, like, if you, I, I, I used to work in a company where, which was trying to put new products into the market. So we're looking for people to buy it. There's 600 million people who have nothing to buy. You don't give them anything. So I started thinking about that. <clears throat> it's led to a, an integration now with medical practitioners in our, in our area. Uh, we have clinicians in an OBGYN office, a pediatric practice. What a great place to be, to screen. You have two patients. You have the kid and you have a parent. You screen. And, you, and maybe we can begin to identify risk and do something to intervene in that risk. <clears throat> we're talking about stretching the continuum. So we're in primary care practice, community health center. I remember the day I went into the OBGYN practice, and I said, this is what we can do if we collaborate. <clears throat> and they said, oh, we need you. <clears throat> we have 22 people. We have 22 patients that need your services. It's 
22? Wow. How many in the practice? 5,000. 5,000. 22. Well, you know the 22 were. The 22 were the, the tip of the, of the berg. That's how folks see this illness. You have 5,000? I said, if we do screen, universal screening here, you have 1,200. Now, they may not be eight or nine on the scale. Eight or nines, we, we do eight or nines. We treat the equivalent of stage 3B and 4 cancers for the most part. I want it stage 1, stage 2. That's how we make impact in the delivery of a service to people to help. It's not, it's prevention. Prevention is such a soft word. It's not prevention, it's early intervention. So we're thinking about those things. We're looking at those sorts of things to change the model, to really make it a chronic uh, care model. We say to patients, we're with you to help you manage your illness for life. Now, what does that mean? You're going to be in treatment forever? No. But, you you know, it's like discharge. We discharge people. Now, <clears throat> we don't want to discharge people. I mean, I envision a time when, sure, you're in remission. And what is success, really? Extensive periods of remission, shorter periods of acuity, and rapid uh, re-intervention when those acute, when those acute uh, states continue. In our recovery management program, we have about 12 recovery managers who work in, the, in different parts of the state with folks post-hospitalization. The numbers are really terrific. Emergency room visits down, new legal entanglements down, periods of remission up, days employed up, and what happens when someone has a regression? Within 72 hours, they're restabilized. They don't go on long runs. So we can do these things. Now, of course, who pays for it? You know, so financial sustainability around these issues is big. But we're headed to a, a place where purchasing by payers is not going to be a day of care that you provide. It's going to be what value do you bring, and outcomes are important. But value-based purchasing at some point is going to mean assuming risk, assuming risk. And so whether you do it yourself or whether you have strong collaborations to ensure that the continuum is stretched well beyond what you may do individually or what we may do individually as an organization is amazing. So one other last thing and I wanted to say before I stop, and that is, oh, I only got the two things on my list. I want to say one thing about, <clears throat> because I know I'm speaking to the choir, but it needs to be said anyway. There's this whole thing about, because we hear it all the time, well, you know, you give these people naloxone, and they just, you know, the first thing they want to do when they come out of naloxone, they want to use again. Duh. <clears throat> um, they don't really want help. They just keep overdosing and overdosing. So we started to do two things, one with police departments. So we actually do overdose intervention services with 17 police departments in our area. We go out and we visit the homes of non-fatal victims. We visit the families of fatal overdoses, but we visit the homes of non-fatal overdose victims. And we often, we go with the cops. It's quite remarkable, actually. I'd be running out the back door, for God's sakes. Some do. <coughs> and we offer them an opportunity for treatment right there, right then. 75% of the 
contacts. We've made over 100 contacts with folks. 75% of the people say, yes, I'll go. And we get them in. It's a stretch, but we get them in. Same thing in emergency rooms. We have clinicians in emergency rooms. The staff love them. You know why they love them? Because they don't have to talk to those patients who they don't know how to talk to, they don't want to talk. The first thing that the medical staff says to the patient when they come in the emergency room, if you do anything in my emergency room to screw up the care of all the other people, I'll call the police. Hello? Go ahead and call them. <laughs> so we got, we got people in there who don't do that. And by the way, so we're in there for opiates because that's the thing. And I must say, June, we, we have to make sure that in, in our interest of trying to sort of turn this around in a hurry, that we think very carefully and systematically about how we deploy resources and how we try to do things that not only address the current crisis, but think about sort of redefining the system of care so that it's much more effective long term. So we have four times as many alcohol events in that emergency room we do with opioid events. But the same thing, we've been in there five weeks. This guy's done 45 interventions. 33 people have said yes to treatment. So people do want to get better. They don't want to live in this kind of a hell. And by connecting with these other practices, we start to let them know that this is a legitimate healthcare service. It's not sidelined like we have been for so many years. And we didn't even want to talk to the medical profession, because what the hell do they know? It's our time to get in the mix, and I, I hope we don't squander it. Thank you. Fred? Good morning. My name is Fred Holmquist, <clears throat> and I am a 12-step folk wisdom subject matter expert, which contains probably three paradoxes and, and an oxymoron. Um, and for me to uh, make sense of a presentation like this, or you know what. What can I contribute? I uh, try to look for the big context, and and uh, it doesn't come to me right away. But earlier today, I was looking at the two elements of the conference title, evolution and synthesis, and then today's presentation, program integration, 2016. And it struck me that evolution is a is a path, synthesis is a two-way street. And integration is involved with both of them. And so this morning, I'd like to talk about, uh, I pay attention to nudges in life. They're as important as any plan I might have. And it seems that I've uh, been nudged into a role of integrating, or trying to, being a resource for integrating evidence-based practice with practice-based evidence. And I consider Alcoholics Anonymous the grandparent of all 12-step uh, fellowships to be 
a wisdom tradition. It has a congregation, a fellowship. It has uh, a wisdom text, big book, and several others. And it helps people reduce suffering and increase fulfillment in life by providing community support and guidelines for how to live. And so um, the practice-based evidence that uh, is the what has emerged from the experience of, you know, Roland Hazard and Bebby Thatcher and Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob um, has something that really has made a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. Um, and so this morning I'd like to cite three committees that I was um, assigned to by Dr. Marvin Seppala, uh, Hazelin's chief medical officer, um, who for me is one of three or four very special people in my life. He's uh, an integrated um, human being. We share a lot of uh, kind of metaphysical and spiritual beliefs. And um, I always, you know, when asked to be on something like that, or even in today's esteemed group, you know, I wonder, well, when they ask me, I say, well, who canceled? Um, and it reminds me of Dr. Dan Anderson, one of the clinical pioneers of the Hazelden model of treatment, who was so fascinated by the MMPI results of alcoholics that he'd never seen before as a Canadian-trained uh, PhD in psychology. Um, he said, gee, they're egomaniacs with chronic low self-esteem. <laughs> and, and then that reminds me of what would be a very good title for a song. I don't think much of myself, but it's all I do. <laughs> so now it doesn't cripple me to have a marginalized sense of my value. It's just a part of um, how I feel comfortable in life. So I think the two-way street of, of synthesis and what contribution I can make is uh, integrating practice-based evidence into evidence-based practice and evidence-based practice into practice-based evidence. And so my three examples today, one is essentially um, integration of uh, mission and margin, which I've observed in many organizations, is um, early on a lot of mission, later on a lot of margin. And um, in the middle there was, well, you have to do well to do good. Uh, and more lately it's been no margin, no mission. Uh, and I think that us versus them uh, was what the first committee, probably 10 years ago, it was a committee that was going to write a white paper on acuity and complexity. And what I learned in that process was that um, there's a big difference between those two issues, uh, never having realized that. Uh, words can have a lot of different meanings all at the same time. Acuity, in my best understanding of it, is the, um, to check my timer, is the challenges that the patient brings to the situation, the level of need, the level of damage, the stage three or four cancer patient. Complexity is the, um, the challenges that the system requires. 
and a greater sensitivity to those two elements um, I think is an important part of the mission and margin integration um, because basically if people are being uh, if people in the human services field are being um, untethered in terms of the amount of work that they can work at if they want to you know then there's a lot of uh, turnover uh, but then turnover needs to be pointed out as a major expense in terms of retraining. Uh, you know, Hazelin has a, a graduate school of addiction studies, and so we're constantly turning out fairly qualified people. But even if they come in after a year of constant study, it takes about a year to learn the system after that. So I think one of the benefits that I hope um, is on the horizon is the actual workload relief that electronic health record can bring. I don't know. Early in my own exposure to computers, I was always disappointed in the software once I booted it compared to what the marketing had told me. But um, in any case, uh, that was an important uh, element. The second committee was uh, setting up a training program to teach existing staff about the uh, beginning of using naltrexone as an anti-craving medication for alcohol once it was approved by the FDA. And so this is an example of, I think, synthesizing evidence-based practice with practice-based evidence. And I think Marv has me along this because I have a, you know, this 12-step kind of uh, career path uh, teaching and um, that I would be a voice to the uh, older counselors uh, if I got up there and supported it somehow. Well, what came to me when I started to ponder this was uh, in uh, The Doctor's Nightmare, last page, her story in the back of uh, the Wisdom Text, Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, unlike most of our crowd, I did not get over my craving for liquor much during the first two and a half years of abstinence. It almost it was almost always with me. But at no time have I been anywhere near yielding. I used to get terribly upset when I saw my friends drink and knew I could not, but I schooled myself to believe that though I once had the same privilege, I had abused it so frightfully that it was withdrawn. You know, so I get to teach that, gosh, that doesn't sound much like a disease model. Uh, and for people who patients who don't, you know, who, who don't get the big book and I'm Mr. Big Book guy, for me to be able to be critical of it, and I think in a justifiable way, is helpful uh, because they're critical of it. So um, Dr. Bob probably would have qualified for naltrexone. Um, and the third committee was the uh, Core 12 committee, uh, Hazelin's, Betty Ford Foundation's formal response to uh, the opiate crisis. And um, what I realized, because uh, one of the closest people to me in my life uh, is a recovered heroin addict. And so I, I kind of asked her, what is it with heroin? You know, we always kind of generalize that, well, one drug's more addictive than another. I think it's really true that heroin's more difficult to get off of than a number of other drugs. And uh, this, the accidental overdose 
phenomenon is very clear of that. So the idea is that she told me what it was like in the day when she went to Vanderbilt Hospital Psychiatric Ward to detox, and their protocol was Haldol and Valium. Uh, she broke out of there, scored some dope on the streets of Nashville, and then hitchhiked back to Memphis, Tennessee. You know, another element of the miracle in her life that she's alive today. At Hennepin County Detox in, Fred, your time's up. Um, at Hennepin County Detox in 1975, um, the opiate withdrawal protocol was, you ready for this? Hot chocolate. So what she helped me understand was that heroin is such a great drug. I mean, euphoria, the whole, I mean, nirvana, you name it, it's there. Um, it kind of spoils people for tolerating any level of discomfort. And being dope sick is on an extreme scale at the opposite of reward. Uh, and so even the idea of thinking about getting off of opiates um, pushes a lot of atypical discharges. And so Hazelden's use of extended medication-assisted treatment to help people integrate into the group, keep them in treatment, continue to get a more uh, community and spiritually-based uh, momentum in their recovery, and then get off of it. Um, is a program that I think, you know, I'm not a statistician, um, but I do know that the premature discharge rates for opiate addicts at Hazelin overall uh, has gone from 18, 20, John, are you here? From what was it? it has gone from 22% premature discharge rate to 4%. Now, you know, correlation doesn't mean causation, however, we're studying all of that. So, um, you know, Dr. Silkworth's phenomenon of craving is now the science of craving. And, uh, but they're just fleshing out everything that, uh, that he knew at the time. Uh, and so, uh, I also look forward to this afternoon's talk uh, because I couldn't be more excited about uh, this topic being so important and visible in the field today. Thank you. Thank all of you for sharing your comments and, and your presence here. So we have, uh, as we plan, folks, we have some time. Uh, there, there are three ways we're going to go here. We're, we have uh, some questions from you. I have prepared some questions. Or I can bring Ray back up and he can complete his list. So uh, let's do what, what the, the panel and I discussed. What we'd like to do is we'd like to hear from you. Uh, we have uh, some experts here. We have uh, people of influence. So questions that you may have either around their comments, and I'm, I'm sure they're comfortable enough to take something uh, just off something they've discussed. Any questions from the floor? Yes. I have a question on medication. You have three FDA approved meds. Two are opiates. One is an opiate blocker. When is it appropriate to use the opiate 
Dr. Clark? Sure. So, so that's a great question. Um, I don't know that I'm on. Oh, okay, great. So that's a great question. And the question, if anyone didn't hear it, is how do you choose between, we have three medications that are FDA approved for uh, treating opioid use disorder. How do you choose between them? How long do people stay on them? Is there a progression through them? And the answer should uh, always be it depends on the patients and their need and what is working best for them and the totality of things that go with um, having to access those three kinds of treatment. So I would, I would tell you that um, ACM last year put out an evidence-based guideline for the use of medications in the treatment of opioid use disorder, talking about all three of those medications, and it does address that construct. And it, it's very similar to what I've learned just as a psychiatrist. You know, how do you pick which antidepressant? Well, you pick it based on the side effect profiles of the medication, the family history of the patient. Did their, someone in their family do well with one medicine versus another? You pick it based on do they have a construct of what they think will work better for them because it's very, you know, going against a patient's expectation is never a good choice. It's better to ally with their, uh, what feels better for them. Um, what has their experience been with the medication? There are all of those things that we always choose when, when deciding between medications. The other things that are different about these, the delivery system around the three medications is very different. For methadone, it to be done legally, um, it, it has to be accessed by a person who goes into a licensed opioid treatment program six to seven times a week, starting off, getting their medication, consuming their medication in front of somebody, and going back the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Um, there are about a thousand OTPs in the country, give or take, and they are, um, in my state where I live in Kentucky, there are only two that are um, uh, funded by any kind of, of insurance, really, uh, by the state, uh, one in each of our two largest cities, and that's it. So people in rural areas, for example, have a hard time accessing methadone treatment because it can be difficult to get to those. Some people's jobs require them to travel, so that makes it more difficult to choose methadone as an option. Um, buprenorphine is probably the easiest for patients to access because it can be written from a physician's office, only physician right now's office, um, and can be filled at a pharmacy. Okay, so in terms of uh, ease of use, um, that's probably the easiest for patients to be able to access as opposed to the third option, which is uh, naltrexone and extended release naltrexone, naltrexone the oral, uh, very poor outcomes unless there's someone who is making sure the patient takes it every day. You know, very much that anti-abuse construct, the person has to take it every day. Um, the extended release naltrexone is a specialty pharma product. It can't just be written as a prescription and sent out for uh, the patient to go pick it up at the pharmacy. Okay? So it needs to be refrigerated. There, there are some things around it that, that, um, that access to each of those three kinds of care is problematic because of the specialty pharma nature of how many physicians or, or advanced practice clinicians can provide it. The second is around access because of the 300 patient limit for buprenorphine, and the third is access around where a methadone clean treatment may be available. Um, and then the question of, of how long people stay on, the data, we've got better data on methadone, and then secondarily buprenorphine, but primarily methadone, than almost any kind of treatment for any kind of medical disorder in terms of morbidity and mortality. Um, and the data is just really clear, the longer people stay on the medication, the longer 
they, they live, the longer they have sobriety, the longer that they, they are able to function. You know, three months is better than one month, six months is better than three, two years is better than one year. Um, if, you, if your construct is chronic brain disease, is co chronic disease, just like some people can, can diet and exercise their way off of their metformin for, for diabetes, or even insulin down to metformin, and some people can't. It really does need to be extremely individualized for that particular patient. Can I just say one thing? <clears throat> uh, the Office of National Drug Control Policy has been working with the National Institute of Corrections and Bureau of Justice Assistance, and there's lots of interest in the corrections field for getting people who need medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder access to that, that treatment. And extended release naltrexone seems to be um, favored by the corrections industry, and particularly for reentry, because people get their injection and they don't have to worry about coming back every day for treatment um, for a month. So I just wanted to share that. Although, oh, and one other thing, not to, say, not, not to suggest that, that MAT, you know, methadone is being used in some states. Connecticut's using methadone, in fact, for people who are actively incarcerated and not in reentry. And, and so different um, correctional institutions are looking at different avenues, but I, I just wanted to mention that uh, extended release naltrexone seems to be a favorite for the corrections industry, sort of in general. And there is great interest in doing more. I would say just one more thing around that access and choice. There is an implantable buprenorphine that is likely going to be approved by the FDA uh, this month, and it'll be implantable for six months, sort of like implantable contraception. And there are injectable uh, buprenorphines for once a week or once a month that are uh, looking like they'll be coming to market at various stages within the next two years as well. So around the access issue and people having to come in and, and whatnot, I, I would throw those out as something to be dealt with. Uh, it would be, oh, it, it couldn't be buprenorphine plus naltrexone um, uh, because that, uh, the reason that it's put into the, the pill, of the naloxone, is to just make sure that it's not injected because you can't put both in, you can't partially block and block, really. It doesn't work that, it wouldn't work that way. So it would be an injection of a buprenorphine product uh, or you could continue to inject naltrexone, but they, they work on that receptor differently. One's a, you know, one's a partial agonist, one's an antagonist. Paul?
Uh, let me take a shot at that because I, I sort of I've, like a, we're coming from a similar place, and and then to reconcile the the current state of things, which is frankly there are there are medications, and so and they have efficacy, and so how do we integrate them into our practices in a meaningful way that still re, you know still allows us to respect the, the, the I don't want to say the traditions, but the, the, the stuff that we grew up with, the, the things that we believe, our belief system about recovery. And so we have, we've had this struggle. And so we made a, a decision as an organization to certainly to adapt new medications. But, uh, and we started back before the injectable naltrexone. We had a cohort of patients who we started on Suboxone, and we wanted to see how it went. And and it went okay for a while, but the, part of the problem is that the people never got off the Suboxone. Not, and I'm not—I don't know whether they should have or shouldn't have. But <clears throat> there were certain there were certain things about their recovery that seemed compromised. And the patients began to talk about, "I'd like to try to get off. I just don't want to take medication forever, particularly if I'm developing those recovery skills that would enable me to stay in remission." We then moved, basically migrated, almost all the patients migrated to injectable naltrexone. We have hundreds of patients on Vivitrol. Uh, we have patients actually who come to detox now who don't want a Suboxone-guided detox they want, because they want to move directly to Vivitrol, and we're sort of working on a protocol that would allow us to deliver that medication to them before they even left detox because there's some... Well, I don't want to get into all that, but... so. We've kind of used injectable naltrexone as the first-line medication. We say, like, uh, and patients who don't do well on it or patients who have issues with it, we then consider something else. But all of that is integrated with, the, you know, with <coughs> psychosocial interventions and expectations that you're involved with counseling <coughs> or IOP or seeing a, a practitioner. And I, I, you know, I, I, I know the data is, like, a little thready, but we're seeing really favorable outcomes with patients to do that. So, you know, and it's an antagonist. It's not an opiate. I mean, we're admitting, frankly, we're admitting patients now to detox, to be detoxed from Suboxone, and that's their choice. So we try to work with them. We let them know what we think might be the first line uh, medication. But if it doesn't work, I say, as I agree with Kelly, because there are some patients who we might refer to a methadone practitioner because we've tried everything, and their condition or the severity of their illness dictates something that may not be in line with our belief system, but it's what's best for the patient. So I think you, you can reconcile your philosophy and your belief system with the reality that we, we have these medications, I dare say, that in the next 10 years, Vivitrol and Suboxone will be like aspirins. There'll be new things that are much, much better than that. And we need to integrate them into how we think about taking care of patients. And it means a shift for many of us. I, I, I agree with you that way. We've done the same thing. Our practice can be very useful. Uh, also, the challenge we had in the system was patients who were uh, taking suboxone or perhaps a very small number of patients who were not in the newborn cell block. We almost had to have another group that's over here to make it go. That says something to me. I don't know what the research is that's underneath that.
Well, we, we actually are disseminating information about all of the medications. Our guidelines do indicate that, but I'm very happy that you mentioned that, that issue of implementation because, you know, the devil is in the details. And uh, for those who thought that buprenorphine was going to be a panacea, it's just one medication of many that we need. And it's almost where, as has been said, at the beginning of this. And uh, taking off my SAMHSA hat, and as a clinician and as an administrator, I've seen the diversion in a mixed population of, of Suboxone to people who just looking for anything. So um, the, the, the guidelines, the implementation, uh, of best practice is not just, you know, here's a medication, use it, but what's happening on the ground uh, uh, in the clinic. And of course, the, p the potential of using an injectable is a way to, to, get, to get around around that issue. The only other thing I wanted to say is it's not medication only, it's medication and psychosocial treatment and counseling, which is critical. And I just wanted to highlight that the uh, extended medication-assisted treatment that I referred to as a CORE 12 program is the least utilized of the options that are given people. Um, the, the antagonist, naltrexone, um, but everybody who signs up for it gets uh, opiate support group. And that is that creates that feeling of having shared in a common peril when, gosh, these guys are on this drug, you know, there's no separation. It's a very important additional uh, support element, and that is the most utilized of the three options. But also, everybody can sign up just for the support group. And if I could just add uh, hang on, Dr. Clark. We, we've got lots of questions. Oh. Uh, I appreciate that. So we want to give other people a chance to talk. Non-residential is not covered. Residential is covered. Is not covered. Yeah. Well, I mean, CMS has taken its first steps. The 1115 waiver is available for states to, you know, use and alter their plans to make efforts to cover residential. But it's up to the states to work that out. Oh, by Medicare. Um, right on. Got on you. Okay. Uh, so let, I, I think that what we're looking at is we, these are all new efforts, and the 1115 waiver is a huge deal for us, that at least CMS is willing to look at ways that states can be creative in doing it. One step at a time is all I can say. I mean, yes, in, in, in the best of all worlds, all of the services required for this population should be covered in a comprehensive way that people get all the care that they need. And that's what our objective is ultimately, but, you know, one step at a time. I would just add that uh, CMS is looking at innovations. They have a program called the Innovation um, Adaptation Program, Accelerator Program, and they're doing um, um, little laboratories. SAMHSA has, has a grant in combination with, with, with CMS uh, to do something called Comprehensive um, Behavioral Health Centers, and um, we're also even looking at the uh, 
the 16, I think it's a 16 patient uh, limit mm -hmm. in uh, inpatient care. So sometimes the, the rules, regulations, and definitely the statutes lag behind where we are as a field. And I could, if I could just mention there, I think 28 states expressed interest in the accelerator program. And I think there are only seven core states that are really intensively doing work, but the other states are learning from the core states. So it is a, it is a you know, an experimenting process by states, but I think that there is great hope that great ideas will come out of it. Right here. This is, uh, thank you, this is, uh, I appreciate the passion and we've got a leadership conference so I've got, we've got people sharing. We have 10 minutes with a very accomplished panel. Questions. The people have questions. Yes.
Well, you're talking about you know, sort of that's one factor in a number that are predictive, if you will. So, so how do we, how, what can we do to better, you know, do some predictive modeling to say what are the indicators that might enable us to intervene earlier <clears throat> before someone has a regression? So, uh, you know, so I don't know. I mean, we we use a number of those things. We actually measure uh, patients in about 20 domains, which <clears throat> and and some are around those conditions, but some of them also around the social determinants in this in the, with this condition are, are really significant. I mean, things around uh, supportive environments and all of that is is critically important. So I, I I think there's good work to be done because what what we've seen in the in the sort of little stuff that we've done is that you can actually you, you know, you can you can begin to intervene earlier, and you can. I mean, of course, all of the things that we're doing in clinical work need to be uh, need to uncover those issues and address them in a timely fashion. Because let's face it, there are some issues that people face that may precipitate such anxiety that you know you think you're uncovering and dealing with a trauma, and it may be a little premature to do it. I mean, you know, you may not want to do it on the first day. Uh, but there are so many factors in in this in this disease that are, di I think, different than a lot of other diseases. And, and, and so I, don't, I would, certainly that's one of them, but there are, there are a lot of them. And, and if we can begin to measure those, and you can measure those with patient, uh, pa patient report and more frequent contact, we, we need to figure out what I call about, it, I, I like technology stuff, to, to use a digital loop, to close the loop between the time I see you on Tuesday and the time I come back to see you 10 days from now or 15 days from now, you know, what happens in between is always of consummate interest to me. And how do we, how do we provide supports for people, whether it's through technology or more frequent contact, so that we head off those things and we can be much more predictive about what we're doing. I would like to thank the panel for your time and your commitment to being here at the conference. I know that you are all very busy people and to be here and to share and to prepare your, prepare your thoughts is greatly appreciated. I know that the group uh, will take something from this. I want to uh, invite all of us to continue this conversation because that's what it is, is a conversation in the hallways, in the afternoon sessions, and together uh, and work with people that don't necessarily think exactly like we do so that we can move things forward. And at the same time, everything that is topical, there is no doubt that the tragedy of death of opiate overdose is in front of us. Uh, addiction is not new, and it, and it won't be new. And what are the structural changes uh, that the federal government can make, that insurance companies can make, that treatment providers can make to intervene on this disease earlier and perhaps be more effective uh, in helping people understand uh, the benefits of recovery as many of us know it. So it's not going to be easy. I don't believe it has ever been easy. Uh, there are tremendous challenges. I'll close with this. We were at this conference last year, <clears throat> and you may recall Dr. Gold predicted a, a wave of stimulants. I live in Washington State, and all the information was gathered, uh, and the map of cartel activity. Cartel activity dropped from 3,500 
legal incidents around marijuana to four. Does anybody know why? Because marijuana was legalized. There were just as many legal incidents around drugs. It wasn't opiates. It's stimulants. The cartels are moving stimulants into Washington to replace. So the business model on the supply side is to offer stimulants to the demand is my takeaway. And so as a business model and products, what Ray talks about, it's a very interesting clientele. They'll use what's cheap and in front of them. And that has been opiates, but it may not be opiates five years from now. As Ray said, this has been going on for quite some time. Many of us have seen it and dealt with it as an epidemic for over a decade. So unfortunately, there will be a next. Alcohol will be a constant. And you will continue to do your best to find ways to help them. And, and we appreciate that, and I appreciate that. So once again, thank you. Um, couple of announcements. Thank you all very much. If you're feeling like we stirred the pot a little bit, um, we did. And I will have some comments at the end of the conference on the concept of abstinence from uh, NAATP's perspective. And so I hope you stick around for that. Half an hour for lunch, or pardon me, half an hour for a break upstairs. Thank you, Sundown M Ranch, for sponsoring this break. Come back for ethics. And then don't get excited about leaving then even after that, because the roundtables this afternoon, first of all, we have uh, uh, some workshops, but then the roundtables where we really sit down um, as thought leaders and talk about what is, is difficult to talk about in a large group and really prepare some comments to come back to NAATP so that we can get down to details will begin to happen. The pot is stirred. Let's do some cooking this afternoon. <laughs>